Uh, and to be real frank, if there's any place that makes me more nervous, I can preach to big crowds. I can preach all over the world, but to preach at home, I'm about going to wet my pants. So, um, but I uh, really appreciate uh, having some folk like Edward here. That's that's you don't know what that means. It's even thought to come over here. So, uh, really appreciate it. But uh, for some of you that may not know exactly who I am or what I do or or what a good Lord is. What is that? Is that an iPad? Is there, have you ever seen one of these? Who's ever seen one of them? Seriously, that's an iPad? I'm sorry, I just got distracted when I saw that. I ain't never seen one that big. Well, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'll get to what I want to do in a second. <laughs> uh, uh, brief history, just on me to help you connect right fast. Uh, grew up right here in South Georgia. Uh, all I know outside of ministry is farming uh, and running heavy equipment. So uh, if you want to talk peanuts and cotton or if you want to talk bulldozers and co- or combines, uh, I'm your man. Uh, so uh, uh, been... Uh, uh, in ministry, you know, I, I've been I've been taught, you know, you're supposed to go back to when you preached your first sermon, and so I preached my first sermon uh, uh, when when my father-in-law had his first heart attack, uh, and uh, I got the call, uh, uh, you know, uh, you got to preach Wednesday night, and so I preached one of Brother Hagin's many books on Wednesday night. <laughs> Why tongues? You know, why not just go big the first time, you know? <laughs> you know, that was in 1994 uh, in the Goodwill Assembly of God down there in Pearson. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, then in 1997, from then till 97, well, we was already serving. I don't know when we started, maybe 89 or 90, serving Kim's daddy uh, there uh, as a deacon. And we did jail ministry. We did... We did sounds. So Jimmy, I know what I know what it feels like for all heads in the congregation trying to look at you, and 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 the, the, that part of you that still ain't saved wants to wants to, wants to tell them all they're number one. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I just let you think about that. And then uh, uh, we did. I don't know. We did a little bit of everything. We even sang, didn't we, Edward? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, had a Holy Ghost meeting one night, and I beat a hole in a pair, of, a pair of khakis with a tambourine. So, yeah, that's a real Holy Ghost meeting when you beat a hole in a pair of khaki breeches with a tambourine. Yeah. So, uh, and then in 97, we left the farm and left the church there and went to Ramah. And when we've been in full-time ministry since that time, and we've did a little bit of everything since then. Uh, we've been in a couple of staff positions. Um, we've been associate pastors. We've been senior pastors. Uh, we've traveled. I've um, uh, been a district director for RMAI for a number of years up in Kentucky. Uh, we served a regional director uh, for a number of years, uh, which meant I did all the work and he had the title. Uh, <laughs> um, and then for the last three years, uh, soon be, uh, we have been back at Rama and uh, loving every minute of it. And uh, currently, um, I serve in the RMAI and alumni department with Doug Jones. 
under his leadership in that department, and he and I and Joe Dunnick uh, oversee all of our uh, ministers with RMAI and all of our alumni, and then uh, I teach in the school. I teach um, New Testament survey. I teach um, introduction to pastoral care. I teach uh, in our in our uh, biblical studies uh, third year module. I teach uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, everybody's favorite subject. Uh, I teach First Saint Kings and First Saint Chronicles, and then I uh, also teach um, a third year class uh, with pastors and itinerants on sermon development and delivery. Uh, really, really nitty gritty class. So we I teach for about two weeks. On, uh, on a sermon on developing and delivering messages, and then they have to write and turn in eight sermon outlines in that class, and plus they have to write one that they preach in class and turn in, and then uh, we do verbal and written critiques. And so every day in class we have two sermons, and then we critique them right out loud. Hey, baby. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I remind them we're, we've been in school for three years now. Surely we can put on our big boy britches now, and, and, uh, but we're going to be nice, right? So, so uh, but yeah, we really enjoy what we do, and we love our Rama family. And uh, I'm more excited now about what we're doing than, than ever. Um, I brought a few things to give away, um, uh, knowing that we might have a mixed group and not knowing who and all might be here. Um, but just to catch you up on a few things, um, one of the our magazine that we publish um, is Connections. How many of you didn't get the last issue? Some of you aren't alumni, so I know you didn't get it. So here you go. Here you go. Uh, yeah, you didn't get yours. How many didn't get that? Yeah, you, all you guys, once you get one, here you go. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. There you go. One, two, three. There you go. We did a uh, uh, departure from the norm. Normally what we do with this magazine for our alumni is we tackle a subject um, that would be of benefit, kind of a continuing education type of a situation, most of, as most of you know. But in this last issue, we decided um, to, to um, rather than go down the normal path, um, we wanted to highlight the school. You know, because I mean, everybody thinks that whatever year they graduated, it was the best, and it's been going downhill ever since. Come on, tell the truth. And so uh, uh, we really wanted to highlight the school and really communicate that it's, it's still as good as it ever was and better, uh, and really highlight some of the things that we did that's changed and improved. Um, and, and to be honest, um, one of the things I've never done is publish a magazine. And now in the chair I sit in, I've found this in my lap. And so I'm the man behind the screen pushing buttons and pulling levers, making this happen. And I'm way out of my depth. And so um, my main goal here with this is I wanted to touch something in the emotions of our graduates out there to you know, to stir them about our school, uh, you know, that it's still awesome, we're still doing great stuff, and we still need to be sending people there to be trained for ministry, amen, 
And so we have Karen Jensen. Many of you remember her. Some of you won't know who she is, but Karen um, still uh, works as a writer uh, for us. And so um, uh, she and I work together uh, with other folks to make this thing happen. But this was our latest issue. And then we did one uh, previous, and that's the reason those of you that are alumni, uh, the reason we've been kind of behind is because there's been this whole retooling process for how we do this magazine. Uh, and so we're getting back on track now. And so we did one here. Edward, you like that one? I've wrote for this several times over the years, and I wrote an article in there. Um, and uh, here's one on burnout. I figured this was a bad place for us to pause. I didn't have too many of these. Here's, uh, I may have enough. One, two, three, four, five. Here you go. That's a good issue right there, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, so these will bless you. Well, here, I tell you, give me one of them back. Can y'all share some? Can y'all share some? How about that? There you go. So I figured those might bless you if you hadn't seen them or want to see them. If you don't like them, you know, give them away. Uh, so, uh, and then also, um, how many of you get the um, that burnout issue is awesome. How many of you know that's like a cancer in ministry? Huh? And I'm sick of hearing it. I could just want to just scream or cuss or something. Every time I hear somebody say, well, I'm just burned out. Huh? Well, that right there's your medicine. Uh, how many of you get the, the, the e-news or whatever they call it, the email that comes out from Kenneth Hagin Ministries? Or how many of you follow the Alumni Association on Facebook? Go go on your Facebook, Rama Alumni Association, like us. Keep up what's going on because a lot of times I share a lot of stuff on there. But this, I'm, I put this into a one-page doc, and this is good. It goes well with that magazine that we just did. I'll just throw some of these on every table. That's an article right there that uh, they interviewed Dean Tad. And uh, and he put into verbiage, um, language of a house, what we're doing nowadays with the school. And I thought it was excellent. And so I just kind of put it in that. thought I'd bring those to give to folk. Because everybody always wants to know, you know, when you go out on the road, how's Rama doing? Well, Rama's doing awesome. Um, and uh, there's some of that stuff will help you to, to see a little bit about how we're doing and how and how we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and also, uh, just a, a few side notes along that line. Um, everybody wants to know numbers and things of that nature. And, and as you'll see in that little one-page deal I gave you there, uh, you know, when most of us went to school, uh, maybe with the exception of Mark, um, uh, Raymond was just a two-year school. You know, the idea of coming for a third year was, you know, was kind of a phenom, you know. That was, wasn't much of that. But but now, um, I mean, we got, uh, we're full-fledged four-year deal, you know. Um, I mean, we got, you know, little Miss Birdie. Uh, she's been there about eight years, I think. <laughs> she keeps taking classes. <laughs> I don't know how old is she, Kim. Do you remember? I don't know. She just keeps coming back. So, <laughs> anyway, but, um, uh, you know, you can come and pretty well graduate 
in two years like you always have. And and you can still, you know, second year, if, if you, you know, you're going to be here two years and that's all you want to do, you can still graduate, you know, and pick up the pastor's group and graduate and leave. And that's fine. Um, um, but if you choose to go, let's say, the second year core, which is what we kind of suggest especially young folks do, then you can come back and choose the third year and like go into the pastor's group or the youth ministry or the missions. What we really what we really suggest is the best path, especially for young folks, is to come, you know, the, uh, uh, do the first year, which is foundational, do second year core, do third year biblical studies, and then do fourth year in whichever ministry path you want to go into. That is the best full, well-rounded ministry training somebody can get, you know. But everybody thinks, you know, if I don't go get out there now and save the world, it's all going to go to hell, you know. Well, you know what? Jesus spent 30 years preparing for a three-and-a-half-year ministry, so you know what? Cool your jets. You'll make it. So, but, um, you know, with with uh, with the the time that's gone by and, and, and you know, with Brother Hagin's passing um, back in 03 and and, and the landscape of the church changing and, and nu- numerous Bible schools now, you know, um, the, the student body not being as large as it once was, uh, we, you know, have found a good, a good healthy place. And in the last two years, uh, we've actually seen steady increase uh, in our enrollment, uh, which is, is awesome. Um, and what to me is is just so mind-boggling is our footprint uh, around the world with our international schools. And at present, we have 236 campuses around the world. We have Rhema Bible Training Colleges in 51 nations. And the, we get these reports uh, in, in our office there. Um, monthly, but we're, we're usually about three months behind. And this last one um, would have been uh, at the end of December. And um, at that time, there were only um, about 3,900 students enrolled worldwide. But that's because of the way the the, the, the schools aren't all in session at certain, you know, but, but when you, like like around around right now, when more of them are in session, that number's about thirteen or fourteen thousand. If I got that report that was current, and so that that gives you a little more. Uh, and we just had on campus um, um, last week um, after Winter Bible Seminar, um, the group. Um, see, it would be Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, that group did a um, kind of a um, leadership task force planning meeting on campus for a week. And I slipped into some of the meetings and just listened. And it's phenomenal what's going on and the planning and the, the level of leadership and organization. And uh, it's just, uh, I'm just really, I feel really blessed be a part of this family, and you should be too. Amen. And uh, we are really uh, poised 
worldwide to, to play our part in ushering in the return of Jesus. Amen. I mean, we don't own the world with the fence around it. We're not the only one. Come on. But we're going to do our part. Amen. And I'm thankful. And so I'm glad that God chose to uh, put me in the Rhema family. What about you? And, you know, we don't get to choose our family, but some of us try to. Right? I'll leave that alone. Let's pray, and I want to get into a few things. And I have to admit, I've, I've just kind of got this great big old playing field. I want to wallow around in and finally come to some sense of meaning with it all. Um, uh, Mark kind of gave me a general assignment. And so then I sought for what that really means on the inside of me. And, and we'll see what it means to you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we love you, and we are so thankful, Father, first of all, to be a part of your family, Father, to be part of uh, your family by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for saving us, washing us in your blood. Thank you for filling us with the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for gracing us, each one for our particular uh, part of the race, for our particular area of ministry and grace. And Lord, we thank you for uh, placing us in the Rhema family. And Father, we just uh, are so, so grateful. And so we, Lord, as we have gathered here for these next few moments, Father, I thank you for uh, causing me to be able to uh, uh, rightly articulate the things that you have uh, put upon my heart for us today. And Lord, I just thank you for giving me that utterance, bold and clear. And thank you for this people has ears to hear. Everybody said, Amen. In a general term this morning, I want to talk about two things. Generational synergy, kind of a funky little word, and that's, that's going to be the topic of the next magazine. It's in the can right now, and uh, part of my part, they're pressuring me for my article. I was going to wait till after this weekend, because after I get done, then I'll know better what I want to write. I want to talk about generational synergy, and then I want to talk about passing the baton. Those two general things. Because I don't care what age we are in here this morning, this stuff touches us. And this stuff, and you'll understand it more as I go here in a second. Um, and we're thinking about it. And whether we're talking about it or not, and whether we're really thinking about some of this stuff or not, in the church we're feeling the pressure some of this stuff. And so, when I talk about um, this thing called generational um, synergy, think of it like this. You know, Pastor Hagen, a number of years ago, he did a um, a, um, sermon series, and he used this word, generational cohesion. I kind of like that, generational cohesion. 
Um, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. So just hold on. Uh, if you don't have that, this is what you have by default. And this is what you have kind of automatically without even trying. Generational segregation and generational competition instead of generational synergy and generational cohesion. Right? Without even fully understanding what I mean by generational synergy, you already know you can amen generational segregation and generational competition, right? If you got your Bible, I'm going to go to several scriptures, and if you don't and you just want to jot them down, that's fine too. In Psalms 145, verse 4, it says, Psalm 145, verse 4. Psalm 145, verse 4. It says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Let's, let, you, let your heart meditate on that. One generation shall praise your works to another. How many of you be honest? We do a pretty good job of each generation praising his works to its own generation. We don't do such a good job of each generation praising his works to another. And we've got a lot of different ministry gifts represented in this room, and I'm kind of proud of that this morning because this helps. This lends itself to us thinking about this thing. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, Malachi 4, 6, you see this. Just kind of laying a little foundation here. It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Talking about in the last days. And the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Whoa. Now slow down and consider that. The hearts of the fathers being turned towards the children. Think generations. The hearts of the children in turn being turned towards the fathers. And think of it like this, that last clause of that verse. The, the, if that's not happening, the result's a curse. How many think we might be experiencing some of that? Even in the church. Because one generation is not praising his works to another. And then I, you know, this might trip, twist you in a knot, but let, look at Jeremiah seven eighteen. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. It says, Jeremiah seven eighteen. 
This is one of the fav- my favorite classes at Rhema to teach the book of Jeremiah. I love this. I love this book. It says, the children gather wood, but the fathers kindle the fire. Now, if you go and read the rest of that verse, I know it's talking about idol worship, and they're cooking bread for the queen of heaven, okay? <laughs> so, so I'm not stupid. I know what it's talking about. But, but there's, a, there's, a, there's something there besides the literal thing. There's, there's a spiritual connotation there, and it has to do with the children gathering wood, but the fathers kindle the fire. And it goes this whole generational thing. I mean, if you know that, 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 that as children, as, as a younger generation, you know, you can do a whole lot of stuff, do a whole lot of work, gather a whole lot of wood, you know, a whole lot of sweat, make a whole lot of noise, but if we're not connected somehow generationally to some fathers to breathe on that and kindle the fire, there's no anointing. Come on. Just a bunch of stuff. I'm a firm believer that, you know, not just being connected with a, with a, necessarily with a, um, that it has to be necessarily a, a blood lineage, but it must be a spiritual lineage. Okay? And so here's the thought. If the enemy can rob each generation, of the wealth of wisdom of former generations, then he'll keep us in a perpetual state of fatherlessness. I mean, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) And we just keep generation after generation falling right into the same stupid trap. Because every generation thinks, you know, we know better. And so we keep redigging the same wells. Come on. I was talking to mom and daddy yesterday, and I, th- I, I, I was talking about something, you know, uh, else. And, and I said, you know, every generation we think, you know, we've, we, we have discovered it. You know, even some spiritual truths, you know. And I, I've, in my office, i got books on my shelf that are 100 years old. Sometimes I break out stuff, you know, I'm going to read a quote in the morning, Mark, from an American Baptist from the 1800s about in Christ. And you thought we, we, you thought we, we thought, you thought we, you thought Brother Hagin invented that. No, no. No, we, we, we got to start learning the secret of standing on the shoulders of those that have gone before, not our corpses. But that's going to take some working together. 
But this thing about being robbed of the wisdom. See, here's the thing, and that burnout issue of that magazine, you know, um, I was in a meeting with Gerald Brooks. Um, you know, most how many know who Gerald Brooks is? I know Mark, oh, y'all guys do. Um, you know, one of our guys and tremendous leadership teacher. And this was a, just a few years ago, so these stats can't be much off now. But Gerald said that when he started in ministry, uh, pastoring, um, that the average tenure, I don't mean at one church, but I mean in the pastoral ministry of a pastor was 30 years. You know, that's, 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 those are stats. And Gerald is like the wizard of statistics. Sometimes I don't even know where he gets some of them from, but I just take him at his word. <laughs> I know some of it comes from Fuller. I know that. Some of the rest of it, I just, you know, oh, I just take it. Okay. He's lying. He's lying. But anyway. But most of this stuff, when he, when he gives this kind of stuff, it, it's not like some sector or some denomination. It's across the board of evangelical churches in, in America. Across the board. And... Uh, uh, he, he said that when he started, uh, the average tenure in pastoral ministry uh, was uh, 30 years. And at the time that we were in this meeting, he says that was cut in half. It was down to 15, the statistic. And he said at that time, 1,500 pastors were dropping out of the ministry every month. And then that meant that over a 10-year period from today, if you would, 50% of all pastors would be out of the ministry. Pretty sobering numbers. Ministry as a whole has the highest fallout rate of any occupation in America. And the thing about that that is so stark to me when you really consider it in light of what we were just saying, you tell me any other business, any other sector of society, any other corporate structure that could survive. If they lost their top end at that rate, their wisdom, their experience, we got to fix this, guys. We've got to be better at this. But if you're not careful, as young folk, we have the idea, you know, just get out of the way. No, our, our, as young folk, I, it should be, I want to hear what you have to say. And I've always been just a little bit, you know, strange. You know. I mean, as a little fella, you know, I was always, you know, uh, I mean, I've been in cowboy, I've been country when country wasn't cool, like Barbara Mandrell said. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was born with cowboy boots on. 
But, you know, as much as I played and had fun, you know, if there's old folk around, I wanted to listen. I mean, I can remember, you know, spending night at Granny and Poppy's and, and Uncle Connie and Aunt Ann and uh, uh, Uncle Arthur and Aunt Lois, and they'd all, they used to all, all come over and stay, you know. They'd make me go to bed. I'd get up, sneak to the kitchen, get close to the door to the breezeway and listen. I hadn't learned, you know, you know, curiosity, you know, kill cats, it'll kill dogs and people too, but <laughs> I want to hear what they're saying. I like hearing the stories, the stuff. You know, I was eating, eating, eating lunch with Sam Smucker the other day. I mean, no, Sam Smucker from up in Pennsylvania. Sam, Sam grew up Amish, you know, and, and he's been pastoring now up there. He graduated from Rama back in his early 80s, I think. Late seventies, early eighties. Been pastoring up there forty years. Got a mega church up there in uh, 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 Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, he had told. I love to listen to Sam tell stories about growing up Amish. And uh, he had told me a story one time a year or two ago, and he started to tell the same story at dinner the other day. And I'm, but I remembered the story, and I seen his eyes like it blessed him that I remembered his story, you know. And I thought, and it just, and it blessed me that it blessed him, you know. So we we had a moment, but anyway. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure where I was going with all this, but but I've always, yeah, I do, I remember. But I've always been one to want to push in. But even now, at the age that I'm at now, I'm 47, fixing to be 48, um, you know, on any given week, uh, I, am, I am eternally grateful that my wife and I spend a lot of time with Pastor and Miss Lynette. He's 77 years old. She's 70. They'll be 78 and 71 this year. Okay, you can call them whatever you want to, but they're old. Uh, okay, he he don't he don't he don't he don't he don't they don't call themselves old. But I mean, no, that's that, right? Okay, that's the older generation, right? Okay, don't look at me like that. I'm just I'm making an illustration here. <laughs> okay, I love spending time with them. I love listening to their stories. I love hanging out with them. How I many know they don't act old? I mean, I know some 60-year-old people that don't act as young as he does. Hmm? Like he says, it's a mindset. Okay? But just, just at the same time as we do that, on any day in my office at Rama, when the bell rings, that 10-minute period between classes, my office is full of 20-year-olds. They just flock in there. Just hang out for ten, just just for ten minutes to hang out and pause. They call me Pa. I'm like I'm just forty-seven. I ain't old enough to be Pa, but I'll take whatever. But and so I, I even now and and when I was pastoring, I felt now it's a, it feels like a good place. But when I was pastoring the last ten years before where I am now, it was a hard place. Because I felt like the in-between generation. 
seeing the vibrance and the exuberance and the gifts and the callings on these young ones and seeing the wisdom and the grace on these old ones and wanting them to work together so bad I couldn't hardly stand it and 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 wanting and just hmm we got to get this thing right guys it's too much at stake synergy that word simply means the interaction of elements that when combined produce a total effect that is greater than the sum of individual parts. I can understand that. How about you? Let me say it again. The interaction of elements that when combined, everybody say combined, produce a total effect that is greater than the sum of individual parts. In other words, it's like this. How many of you know if you've got a horse, how many of you ever seen a horse pull? How many of you ever seen, I only got mule pulling around here. Okay. How many of you know if you've got a horse or a mule, a single one, and you hook him to a sled, that single horse or single mule can do so much. But if you harness two together, them two together can do more than one plus one. The sum total of what they can accomplish is more than one plus one. I mean, you cannot, it, it just, it don't compute. <laughs> and that's what, that's, that's what this, this word, and that's what happens if we can ever get this thing right, working together generationally, we can accomplish more than one plus one or two plus two. It's a synergy. And I know that's why the devil fights us so bad. And, I, and I'll throw this in there. I challenge you, even studying the Scriptures. You know, you, you can see something that begins with one generation, and you'll see it get passed to a second generation, but you'll see it hard-pressed to get clicked over to a third one. Why? Because the enemy fights the tooth and toenail. But we're going we're gonna to beat that. Generational synergy, I'll give you this quote. Generational synergy moves those of all ages into action and in sync with each other. It brings the whole group, catch these words, from a mindset of tolerance and complacency into passion and productivity. I mean, the bottom line is this. We need each other to succeed. Think of it like this. These are mindsets that we deal with in the church. You got segregation. That means, you know, sit and wait your turn. Right? Sit and wait your turn. Everything's segregated. You're not old enough, you're not smart enough, you're not bright enough, you're not talented enough, you haven't paid your dues yet, 
whatever. We got, we got this mindset, succession. Hmm? That means, you know, somebody will take over when I'm, grown, when I'm gone. Hmm? And then we got this mindset, which should be the right one. We go together. We do it together now. Not you wait. Not you watch while I do it. We do it together now. You know, when you talk about generations, um, saw this the other day. You think about, I mean, we think about, you know, a generation being 40 years, you know, that's, that's okay, that's fine. You can, you can kind of clock them off about that way and kind of measure. That's all right, There's nothing wrong with that. But you can say this too. Uh, whenever the times or the teachings change significantly, a new generation is born. And each new generation is born with its own set of unique core values and attitudes. Can you see that? You know, if we don't utilize our different generational strengths, mentality of generational segregation creeps in and it drives generations apart, correct? I'm going to give you some things here. I'm looking over some stuff and I'm going to get back to my real point. This generational segregation thing, here's, here's a couple of things that gets created, some mentalities. Frustration and stagnation. Displacement and isolation. Mentalities. And here's the thing about those. They're felt usually within a church or an organization where nobody will talk about it. Just walk around with the chip on the shoulder or the burr under their saddle. And both the older and the younger are affected by it. And less effective because of it. And here's what it lends itself to. Is a generation of... Uh, Rogue young leaders in their 20s and 30s attempting to lead in isolation due to the felt frustrations with the older generation. Leading on their own with no connection, leaving in their wake casualties of people because they have little wisdom or guidance to steer them.
And the older generation experiences a great lack of freshness. And they experience a lack of relevancy with the current culture and how to communicate because they're missing the elements of uh, innovation and creativity. Yes? And you think about this, an organization with leaders of all, all the leaders, leadership structure at the top is all the same generation, whether they're young or old, they all have the same per, generational perspective. So, all they, so they all look through the same lens. They all see everything from the same perspective. I mean, though, you need people from every generation sitting at the table to help you see things clear. Here's, here's a list of um, values. If we do this right and we do generational synergy like I'm talking about, okay? Everybody has a valid part needed to complete the whole. Everybody has a valid part needed to complete the whole. How I many know that's just Kind of common sense, isn't it? One part doesn't cancel out the need for the other. Opportunities to serve are opportunities to give. Surrounding yourself with multi-generations will enable you to reach your full potential. When we were pastoring, man, we had a, like Mark, we had a group of young, young ones and we had a group of old ones, you know. And I, from my perspective, we had a healthy church. I mean, it was killing me to do it, but <laughs> we, we had a healthy church. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't easy, but. <laughs> the trouble with the bridge, it gets walked on. I know that's deep, but. present was born of the past, so there are lessons to learn. And the past is not the present, so we must always keep learning. The outcome of the future is a mixture of the wisdom of the past 
and the innovation and the creativity of the present. You know, it doesn't matter what age folk are. They're searching to be validated in ways that say what you have to offer is valid and of value. Do you realize that? Now, that brings me to something I want to touch on. And, you know, different ones kind of divide this up a little different, but the generalities are pretty near the same. And that's the different generations that are alive right now. And, and I'm sure some of y'all have been talking about some of this stuff. Have you, have you or not or even thought about it? You know, I mean, there's really, for the first time ever, I mean, what are there, five generations together? And you've got a sixth one coming on the scene that, I mean, we can't even get our hand around yet. Am I right, Chris? And, and when you start looking at it, it's no wonder we can't get along. Um, you know, the GI generation, you know, and I mean, that's uh, the great greatest generation, you know, that folk like to call it. I mean, they're born from 1901 to, to 1926. I mean, those, those folk, I mean, there are not that many of them around anymore. But uh, the greatest generation that ever lived, they rebuilt the nation during and after a time of war. Survived the Great Depression. They are aggressive self-starters. No one had to tell them what to do. They uh, knew what needed to be done, did it. Sacrificed for God and country as part of their core values. This is the generation that embodied living for a cause greater than self. Uh, some characteristics of that generation. Strongly interested in personal morality. Near absolute standards of right and wrong. Strong sense of personal civic duty, which means they vote. Marriage is for life. Divorce and having children out of wedlock were not accepted. No retirement. You worked until you died or couldn't work anymore. Use it up, fix it up, make do or do without. Avoid debt, save, buy it with cash. Age of radio and air flight, they were the generation that remembers life without airplanes, radio, and TV. <laughs> then you got what's known as the silent generation, born roughly 27 to 45. They think and live younger than any other generation that ever occupied their age bracket. See, this would be pastor's generation. That's, I guess that's why he's a young 77 years old. They make tremendous mentors for younger people. They are very practical. They were the children of the Great Depression era. They came of age, pre-computer, prefer the human touch, approach to life. Generally, they do well working one-on-one -on -one with people. They prefer to work within the system, good listeners, less aggressive, Make better helpers and facilitators. Uh, catch a few uh, here. It says the richest, most free-spending retirees in history. 
marriage is for life. Divorce and having children out of wedlock are not accepted. Retirement means to sit in a rocking chair and live out your final days in peace. A strong sense of transgenerational common values and near absolute truths. Then you got the baby boomers. <laughs> How many boomers is in here? Chris, you're a boomer. Uh, 46 to 64 ish. And you can, you know, you, you can fudge on some of this. And you'll even see this is some of this stuff, you know, you might not quite identify with, but it, it gives you an overall picture of why there's so much conflict. Over 79 million born in this generation. They're idealistic, confident, and career-minded. They're very optimistic. They're currently leading the culture wars. They're driven by success, are used to hard work, believe and believe it should pay off. They are known as the workaholic generation. They are big thinkers and risk-takers. They are known as people-people and also prefer the human touch, the human touch approach to life. Boomer generation. Some of their values here are some bullets. Buy it now and use credit. <laughs> For the first TV generation. The fir- Listen, the first divorce generation. Where divorce was beginning to be accepted as tolerable. And the reality. Catch this one. I got. I was picking on Doug Jones about this. I said, "See, this whole thing is your generation's fault. This is where they began. We began accepting homosexuals. See, I said it all started with you." <laughs> Tend to be more positive about authority, hierarchical structure, and tradition. Uh, one of the largest, I already said that, they're aging. This, listen to this. Their aging will change America almost incomprehensibly. They are the first generation to use the word retirement to mean being able to enjoy life after the children have left home. Instead of sitting in a rocking chair, they go skydiving, exercise, and take up hobbies, which increase their longevity. And you got the busters. This is my crew. 59 million of us. The most undernurtured. <laughs> this is why so many trips to the emergency room. Most undernurtured. Undersupervised generation. <laughs> they are very skeptical. Therefore, they came of age being very independent and self reliant. They're great problem solvers. They're also the most misunderstood generation. They're eager for mentorship due to a desire to want to overcome their weaknesses and develop their abilities. They seek a reasonable work-life balance approach to happiness and success. Some bullet points. They're entrepreneurial, very individualistic. Government and big business mean little to them. I like this one. They want to save the neighborhood, not the world. (laughs) Cynical of many major institutions which failed their parents 
or them during their formative years and are therefore eager to make marriage work and be there for their children. Now, here's an interesting one. They don't feel like a generation. Now, remember, homosexuals were accepted in the previous generation. AIDS begins to spread, and it's the first lethal infectious disease in the history of any culture on earth which was not subjected to a quarantine. Well, let's pause and ask ourselves why that was, because it attached it to a people group which we gave status to. Beginning obsession of individual rights prevailing over the common good, especially if it's applicable to any type of minority group. School problems were about drugs. Right, Edward? <laughs> late, late, late to marry after cohabitation and quick to divorce many single parents want what they want, want it now, but struggling to buy, most are deeply in credit card debt. Been there, done that. Short on loyalty, weary of commitment, all values are relative, must tolerate um, all peoples. That's a value. And then, you know, you got the millennials. Ooh, yeah, there they are. They're among us. They're hopeful about their future. Have a need to communicate and relate. Hence, Starbucks. They are the most nurtured and most supervised generation of all five. They embrace a sense of charity due to experiencing 911 as a child, yet they are also the me generation. Individual expression is part of their core values. Much of this generation is yet to be seen. Uh, and then uh, here's some bullets. I pull these from two different sources. The reason I got it right there. I just found this so interesting to help me when I'm trying to communicate to five different generations. I was telling Edward, commercial break there. I was telling Edward, he was asking me about the student body at Ramah. And, and, and right now, you know, even still, and first, the first-year group is what just, it really got away with me this year for some reason. I don't know why. But uh, it just struck me. I mean, I got some some kids were hitting the stage as soon as the bell rung every day after class asking questions. And they were young kids right out of high school. And it was clear to me the questions they were asking told me they didn't know one end of a Bible from another. And then I realized by the end of the first week, I got four pastors in that classroom. And so you take that age and stage, that's the gamut. And it's much like this stuff. And so even trying to get wrapped around this, I'm trying to help you the same way I'm trying to help myself. And so this millennial thing, <laughs> they are nurtured by omnipresent parents and optimistic and focused. 
See, we bang on these, and then every once in a while I have to don't on me. My generation raised these people. <laughs> yep, we did. <laughs> Listen to this. They schedule everything. Do y'all really? You don't? She says no. She says yes. Okay, see. They feel, that here, remember my generation doesn't feel like a generation? They feel like a generation and have great expectations for themselves. They have never known a world without computers. Think about that. They prefer to work in teams. <laughs> Saying. Some days I miss the lonely cab of a John Deere tractor. I'm just. <laughs> with unlimited access to information, they tend to be assertive with strong views. Yeah. They've been told over and over again they are special. <laughs> and they expect the world to treat them that way. See, they got, they got participation trophies. They do not live to work. They prefer a more relaxed environment with a lot of hand-holding and accolades. Wow. And so are we aren't starting to understand why it's easier to just segregate generationally. If we're going to do this thing called generational segregation, it's actually going to require work. That's why the devil's trap of getting us to separate from our fathers is actually easy. Because it's what our flesh would prefer to do. Right? I know I'm going a little long, but, but you know, um, are we doing all right? I won't be here long and you'll live and not die and, and I'll probably won't be back, so whatever. I'm used to a bell ring, and I hadn't heard one yet, so you know, I just go, I hear one, I guess. So, yeah. Uh, I'll try to make this quick. Um, you know, the, a few scriptures here, and then I want to get to a quick something here as an illustration that we'll run through and, and be done. You know, Paul in, in Philippians, and you can jot these references down, and, and, and we'll get on to something. In, chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read it real, quick, real quickly from the voice translation. How many of you have ever, ever used the voice? Check it out. I love it. The voice. Love it. It's a little more of a, yeah, whatever. I like it. I, I wouldn't use it maybe to teach the doctrine, but it's, yeah. It's, along the, it's in the family of the message Bible, but it's pretty cool. Uh, I use it. I do use it in class when I'm teaching the Old Testament books, because it brings those Old Testament stories alive, instead of them sitting there in class with the eyes rolling back in their head while I read the King James to them. We can, yeah. So those millennials. So anyway, because <laughs> they're special. They're special people. Uh, so anyway, sorry. Paul here writing to uh, uh, in the Philippians. He, he mentions this. Uh, chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 in the Voice Bible, it says, 
There's no one like Timothy. What sets him apart from others is his deep concern for, for you and your spiritual journey. This is rare, my friends. For most people only care about themselves, not about what is dear to the heart of Jesus. That's a pretty heavy revy right there. And it's true. If we're left to ourselves, we have a tendency to go inward and we just care about ourselves and our generation, our family, our group, our color, our creed, our brand, whatever, whatever. Paul says that's what most folks do. But Timothy, Timothy's not like that. He cares for what Jesus is concerned about. And I think Jesus is concerned about the generations working together. One generation praising his works to another and getting this thing done right and ushering in his soon return. And you know, in Judges chapter 2, it's a stark realization to me that Moses did a pretty good job of handing this thing off to, to, to Joshua, but Joshua, it seems, didn't do such a good job. Joshua Judges 2, verse 6 through 10. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And when all the generations had been gathered to their fathers, another generation, notice the emphasis on the generations, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Why? Because they'd gotten disconnected from the generations that did know. And then in 2 Kings chapter 20, I teach through all the, the lives of these kings in that class. And Hezekiah is held up as an example after as one of the greatest kings aside from David. It's interesting, he's held up as a model that there wasn't a king like him before or after. But he gets all the way down here to the end of his reign and he supremely screws up. And that's another thought that it would bear us good to remember, to hold in tension is that starting well doesn't necessarily mean we end well. And he has this supremely stupid moment toward the end of his reign where he shows the Babylonians all the stuff in chapter 20 and the prophet comes in and tells him what's going to happen because of it and, and he tells him when this judgment's going to come to pass and he finds out it's not going to happen while he's alive and this is his response in verse 19 will there not be peace and security in my lifetime Boys, this is a good word, because it's going to be good as long as I'm alive. And this good king, son, took over Manasseh. 
And he was the worst Israel had ever seen. And for the next 50 years, they had the worst king. Manasseh is the one that slaughtered Isaiah. And I just got to wonder if the reason he had such a jack wagon for a son had something to do with his attitude about the next generation. Though he did such a good job in his time, there's this, this little window, this little peep in that one verse showed me something about his attitude toward the next generation. I really don't care. You see, God needs, God, I said that, God needs the synergy of the ages in order to see the fulfillment of the prayers and the prophecies and the promises of previous generations. Because here's the thing, like, if we forget that there are those who came before us. We'll have a tendency to forget there are those that are coming after us and so live only for ourselves. And those that don't learn from history, it's a cliche, but I want to add to it. Those that don't learn from history are what? Doing to repeat it, but I'll add to it. The tragedy to me is they'll probably never even know why. Or probably never even know that they did. (laughs) And I just want to say this to all of us in this room, that the younger need to realize that no matter how gifted, no matter how talented or energetic they are, No matter how special, they are not smarter and wiser than the previous generation. You know what talent will get you without a coach? Nowhere. Uncoachable, talented, gifted, uncoachable people are dangerous. They don't wear Super Bowl rings. I mean, this is a Raymond ring, not a Super Bowl ring, but it's, it's, my, it's my illustration. <laughs> it's my Super Bowl ring. Listen to me. Older leaders aren't the problem. But the problem is when we protect the past more than we protect the future. I don't know about you, but I'm glad at 77, Pastor Hatton decided to go somewhere to sit in a rocking chair and drink iced tea. I'm glad he's smart enough, like we talk about some stuff about in the Burnout Magazine, I'm glad he's smart enough to go to Branson and take breaks, but I'm glad he's not in Branson forever. trying to get somewhere that I actually have in those notes. 
I am frustrated right now with, with guys in our group, and I know it's not just our group, I know it's indicative of the church everywhere, that because of the pressure and because of the, this generational segregation thing, they feel dishonored and, 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 and they're tired. And so they, the only way that they feel to relieve the pressure is to quit. I'm sorry, at 60-something years old, don't quit. We need you now more than ever. And some of these same guys, when I'm begging them and I'm, and I'm working with them and I'm trying to help them stay in the traces, and, 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 and then I wind up having to go to their church like Assembly of God superintendent and be there when they, when they resign, In two weeks, they're calling me on the phone because now they're, they're, they, they're depressed because they have no purpose in life. Nobody needs me. All my friends are in ministry. <laughs> I told you we need you. <laughs> Ministry's like, I'm sorry if this don't compute for some of you, but I'm going to try to help you. Ministry's like farming. A lot of it's mundane. And if you can't live with the mundane, you, you, go ahead and get out of ministry now. Planting time, oh man, there's a lot of hope. I'm telling you what, it's exciting. All the big equipment comes out from under the shelter that's been there all winter long. We start tearing up the ground. I mean, there's hope for the future. Fall comes around, I mean, we break out and grease up the big combines and we start working at night time and, oh, there's a check coming pretty soon here. Oh, it's exciting. All that in between. Irrigating. Shoot now, please. Cultivating every day. Go plow out a little bitty tractor, a little precise equipment. Plow out to the end of the row, turn around, plow back. Every day. Oh, my God. I'm about to lose my mind. But if you can't, if you can't, if you can't stay in that, you'll never get to harvest. I'm sorry, ministry is just like that. But it's in that in-between time when a lot of us quit. And sometimes we experience that, you know, when we're, when we're older. But what we forget is this thing goes in cycles. There's seasons involved. So don't jump ship. This okay? I'm going to try to do this quickly. Because I've said a lot I didn't intend to say. I'm going to talk about something I don't know anything about. Is that Okay. What's this? I said baton. So you and Pastor Earl, y'all know about stuff like y'all are like healthy people. You run and do stuff. Uh, yeah, I go to like barbecue challenges, and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Got one coming up in May in Bixby, the Bixby Blues and Barbecue. I'll be there, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a baton. 
And real quickly, I want this to me. I was captured with this a couple years ago, and to me, it's the greatest example of some of what I'm talking about. If we can see it, uh, and Paul uses uh, a race to talk about some of this stuff. Real fast, go to First Corinthians nine. I, 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 what time is dinner coming, Mark? When I'm done, okay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. I'd like to, if you give me just a little bit of wiggle room, I'd like to say one generation receives the prize. Let's get out of the just one person for a minute, okay? Receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. And, uh, now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline of my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Several other places. Galatians, he, he talks to them, he, he challenges them. You know, you ran well. Who hindered you? Uh, in Philippians, he talks about rejoicing in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain. Uh, uh, in Philippians, he talks about uh, also about pressing toward the mark for the prize and the high calling. In Second Timothy, when he, he's writing this from his, from his second Roman imprisonment, and he gets to that place, he says, I've finished my race. Finished my race. In Hebrews, he talks about let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance. Well, then that means this ain't a sprint. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I was studying some of this and meditating on it, and I even saw uh, something somebody else did along this line. It really kind of tripped my gears a couple, three years ago. Been longer than that now, I guess, maybe four years ago. And, um, and it made me study the relay race. Never been in one, never even watched very many. But I got to studying about the relay race. And I was so taken with the parallels to of a relay race to what Paul was talking about and this whole thing of generational uh, uh, synergy uh, and, and, and the ages. Uh, and so just, just let me give you a few things here, and then I'm going to walk you through this real fast. The four by hundred relay race is as much a skill event as a speed event. A team with four decent sprinters can outrace a team with four better sprinters by beating the faster team in the exchange zone. The key to this event is how much time the baton spends in those exchange zones. The goal for the team should be no more than, you're talking about a high school team, high school boys team, uh, no more than 2.2 seconds in the exchange zone. If it's a high school girls team, no more than 2.6 seconds. If it's an Olympic team, 
1.9 seconds in the exchange zone. No matter how well, um, you know, if you will, we run, if we don't pass the baton, whole team loses. That may mess with your theology a little bit, but that really rattled me when I thought about this race in terms of what Paul's talking about and when I thought about this in terms of eternity and what we're endeavoring to accomplish for the kingdom. Whoa. No matter how well we might run in our time, it ain't about us, guys. It's about all of us. When you think about this baton representing the message of faith, when you think about this baton as the gospel and getting this thing across the finish line at the end. Because we, th- we have to be reminded ever so often, and it would help us with this generational thing even, to re- be reminded of that, that we're products of eternity, not time. But we, most of us have the all about me syndrome, you know. And, and what that does is it causes us to run, if you will, for analogy, uh, in our time and for ourselves, you know, uh, without any thought to those that came before or those that's coming after. And so when you think about the 4 by 100 relay team, the initial runner, the guy that starts, uh, he begins the race in the starting blocks, and then the next three runners will receive a baton like this uh, via the exchanges. Now, I want you to think of this in terms, and we're talking about seconds, but I want you to think of it in terms of years. We're talking about Runners, I want you to think in terms of generations. I want to give you 12 things real fast about this race business. These exchange zones are uh, 20 meters long. Now catch this because it's interesting, something that comes up about it in a second. They're 20 meters long, and they're preceded by a 10-meter acceleration zone. 20 and 10 is 30. And so the receiver begins running in the acceleration zone, uh, but the baton can only be passed within the exchange zone. And so the guy, you know, out in front that's going to get this, he starts running before he ever catches it in, in that acceleration zone. You with me? And so what, what that means to me, you know, in one sense is we may have to catch somebody that's already running. That's exactly right the way it should be. That means we've got to have a culture where we've given, we're given folks permission to run. We're given another generation permission to run. 
But it also means they run for a season without the baton. <laughs> it also means they're running, in a sense, in anonymity and obscurity. Because nobody's watching them. They're watching the guy with the baton. You with me? This is seconds. I'm talking years. And, you know, you can think of this several ways. I mean, I'm, I know I'm talking about, you know, in a grander sense, I'm talking about the message of faith. But, you know, if you get right down to it, you know, you know, if you're passing something off even on a, you know, in a, within a local church, you know, you, you could say, you could say, you know, like Elijah and Elisha, you could say it's the mantle. Hmm? Well, what is that? Well, it's not the calling. I like to say the calling is the identity. I mean, we don't get our identity from our calling. We move in, you know, because you lose, you know. But in one sense, we do, because that tells me who I am as far as my in ministry. Okay. Well, the 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 mantle's not the anointing. That's because that's the equipping that goes with my calling. The mantle's the authority to stand in that. Think of the office of the president. I mean, you know, when Barack Obama left that White House, <laughs> hallelujah, um, <laughs> he didn't lose his uh, uh he didn't lose his identity. He didn't lose his anointing, if you will. He lost the mantle. It stayed with the office. Donald Trump picked it up. He now has that authority. You with me? And so it's kind of like that. You kind of think of it. It kind of helps me just kind of tear something down. I can kind of, you know. And so there's that time where, where somebody's running out in front, and they don't have this yet. Then number two, in the race, it's the position of the baton, not either runner's feet, that determines whether the baton is passed legally. In the four by hundred relay, as in any sprint event, every second counts, according to the race thing here. So runners do not switch hands when carrying the baton. Therefore, if the first runner holds the baton in the right hand, the second runner will, uh, will catch it in the left hand, you see. And then what they do uh, um, when they're running, come here, Mark. Get up there in front of me. Okay? Watch. If we're in the same lane. Okay? We're running the same lane. Same race, same lane. All right? I'm, I'm running in the... I'm carrying the baton in the right hand. I'm, I'm occupying the left side of this lane. He's occupying the right side of that lane. And he's going to catch the baton in the left hand and take it. He don't get to decide. 
which side of the land he's going to run in. He don't get to decide which hand he's going to carry the baton in. Well, that's not my gift mix. It's not my preference. Hmm? You know, seemed like the Lord gave this to me several years ago, thinking about some stuff. Give me four words. Alignment, thinking about ministry, calling, and placement. Alignment, definement, refinement, assignment. I'll say it again. Alignment, definement, refinement, assignment. Alignment was the two runners that got to be aligned correctly. You know, for you and I and whoever else, everybody in ministry, you're not going to ever find your place unless you're properly aligned with heaven and you're properly aligned generationally with a father or a mother. Hello? And then whatever's on you's got to be defined. Somebody's got to help you with that, you know. That's part of the, you, you, you wonder about this, this gender identity problem we got nowadays. You, you want to know what that's about? They never had a mom or daddy to help them figure that out, to define them. It's, it's indicative of this generational segregation. And so you then, then, then you know, just because you've been aligned and, and you know, you've got a, maybe a ministry calling on your life that's been defined, I mean, we still need some refinement. That's why we've got places like Ramah. Hello. Come on. And then, then, then there comes an assignment. And all of that, in, in that relay race, all that happens in, in, in 1.9 seconds. <laughs> One, two, three, four. And then this, you know, I, I kind of added this. A strong team, number three, will have interchangeable parts. A strong team, a strong relay team will have interchangeable parts. A min, at a minimum, a coach should have either one runner who's trained to take over any spot in the relay or two runners, one of whom is trained to receive the baton in the right hand, and one that's trained to receive it in the left hand. That way, if a starting runner is injured, a substitute can fill that specific spot rather than shuffling some of the other starters around. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 6, had it been gifts differing according to the grace let, uh, 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 given to us, let us use them. Many members, 1 Corinthians 12, 20, one body. But what stops us from doing that? We get into comparisonitis, you know. And that only leads to two things, either pride or pity. That's what comparison will get us into, pride or pity. Well, bless God, I'm better than they are. Oh, you know, oh, dear Lord. Number four, the baton receiver must always be facing forward. Facing forward. 
Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's up, it's, it's up to the passer, the baton passer, to put the baton into the receiver's hand. The only time the receiver will look back to the passer is in case of emergency. But, you know, what do we want to do if we're not, you know, some of our old school, and I'm all about honor. Come on. But, we, I mean, just like any other subject, we twist that in the ground, bend it over backwards, and turn it into something weird. We want folks to pay homage to us before we let them have the baton. We need them paying homage to Jesus. Thank you. Number five. Because honor is the key. Without honor, generational synergy doesn't work. But honor flows both ways. It looks different flowing up or down, but it has to flow both ways. Number five. Even if the baton gets dropped, the receiver can still pick it up and continue as long as the baton doesn't leave the exchange zone. Even if the baton is dropped, the receiver can still pick it up and continue as long as the baton doesn't leave the exchange zone. I'm not thinking about this. You know, if in doubt, runners should, are supposed to be trained to pick up the baton and run. The officials will let you know if you've been disqualified. Well, who's the officials? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. <laughs> right? Okay. So you don't get to decide. You don't get to decide when to quit. There is a tremendous amount of mercy and grace extended from heaven in the exchange zone. You don't get to decide when it's too late. You don't get to decide who's disqualified. And this mercy and grace is being extended. We need to make sure and extend some to each other. And by all means, don't quit. <laughs> we need you in the race. Number six, both the runner and the receiver should be running as hard as possible at all times. <laughs> the passer's mindset entering the zone should be that he will blow past the receiver. Obviously, you don't really want that to happen but you don't want the passer slowing down at any time. Well, you don't want to have to slow down in order to pass this off. So you run full speed into that exchange zone. And so then, 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 then for the older generational leaders, that means we don't never slow down. 
We're running full speed right on in, right on into the exchange zone. And and what I what I found out about this in the in the relay race is that the passer should continue running hard for at least ten more yards after passing the baton to ensure that he doesn't slow down too soon. All of a sudden, I saw something. Remember the 10, 10, 10 coming in, 20 in exchange, now 10 going out, 10, 10. That's a generation. You turn it into years. <laughs> and I saw something else. You know, uh, now, 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 not, not only did, did the, uh, um, did the fella catching the, the baton run without it for a little bit. The one that passed it. Now the old generation, he's running for a while without it. talking about the receiver, his mindset should be to run so hard the passer can't catch him. <laughs> so everybody's running their guts out. And you know, bring that back to the scriptures, Paul said, lay aside every weight, everything that's going to slow you down. Well, what could slow us down? Opinions. Arrogance. Entitlement. My baton, I want it. Stop about halfway through the exchange zone, turn around, start. Give it to me. Here's here's something. Number seven. Both runners have their hands on the baton for a season. It's seconds in that race. But I'm thinking in terms of years. There's a time right there. Both runners got their hands on this thing. Wow. I saw that out of my mind. Blown. <laughs> I mean, here again, man, my mind went back to, to, to uh, uh, you know, what the Lord had, had given me. And I thought about, you know, it, re- it required some patience. And it required partnership for this thing to get released. And it required those four things to happen. That alignment and that definement and that refinement and that assignment before this everything this thing ever gets turned loose. And and then in that in that second there, number eight, the passer must release the baton. Once it's been paced and placed. Both got our hands on it for a season. But now that we're paced and it's placed. I got to let it go. Right? I mean, sometimes we have trouble letting some stuff go. I mean, you can kill something and choke the life out of it. You don't let it go. You can love something so much 
Because <laughs> if you don't ever let it go, they the next generation can't run their leg of the race. Number nine, just as we have to let something go, the next generation, the next runner has to take it once we release it. In the race, if they grab it too soon, it'll be dropped, be disqualified. If they grab it too soon, they don't have the, the, the weight, or be, they won't have the weight right, and they'll drop it. When we're talking about ministry, they won't have the weight of character to carry it. You know, I believe, I believe it was Christine Keynes where I pulled this from. She said, the gift on you will destroy you if what is in you can't sustain you. Number 10. The baton must cross the finish line or the whole team loses. And when I thought about that in terms of the grander thing, and I know this, the relay race ain't Bible, but I was just thinking of parallels. I mean, no matter how hard those that went before us ran, if we drop this, in a sense, we all lose. I didn't say we don't all go to heaven. But we lose. You with me? I, I don't want Brother Hagen's time to be wasted. I want this thing to cross the finish line. And then I thought about this, and, and I didn't get these points from the relay race. <laughs> I made these up. <laughs> you know, once you finish... Once we finish our leg of the race, in my opinion, we either prepare for the next leg or we become a coach. It's that simple. You either go get a drink of Gatorade and get ready for the next leg and another baton to be picked up somewhere, or you, or you go over and you put on a different outfit and you get to become a coach, you know. You know, and I, and I saw this one. You know, I don't know how it works in relay racing, but I know how it works in NASCAR. Them stickers mean money. Maybe you get to be a sponsor. <laughs> hmm? And that thought brought me to my last one. You don't get to go to the grandstands because they're in heaven. You hear me? You don't graduate to them till you die. We need you involved somehow or another. Amen? And so I don't know, you know, um, we just need to figure out how each one of us can employ the methods to get all this right. Amen? Appreciate you being so attentive, even with building a new building while I've been talking.
<laughs> Amen. Let me pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for this precious, precious group of people. And Lord, truly our heart's desire, Lord, is to work together, to labor together generationally, uh, to to uh, see the message of faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ brought from one generation to the next generation until we usher in your return. And so I just thank you, Father, for things you've deposited into us today. And I thank you for uh, whatever food we'll partake of here in a moment. We call it blessed, sanctified, and sickness-free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Enjoy being with you.